trigger warning, Death and Friends is not a podcast for the light of heart. Many dark and serious subjects will come up. Listener discretion is advised. This is so stupid. Jake, you can't be serious. It's in his contract. Well, who negotiated that? Sorry, everyone. I went a little hard on the sangrias at the time. God damn it, Jen. All right, let's just get through this. We're going to have a Dom-led episode. What are we doing here? Yeah, Dom, what, what is this place? Whisper. I'm shushing you before the shush lady does. The shush lady? Yeah, she'll come out of the tunnels and freaking shush you all the way to Southlope if you make enough noise. Okay, but what is this place? Welcome back to the Uptown Poetry Slam here at the Blue Grinder. We're going to get started with tonight's spoken word, but first, as always, Chris Foreman on the Hammond B3. Hey, welcome to the Blue Grinder. What can I get you guys? Old-fashioned, malort, heroin, coffee? Uh, I'll have a malort. Wait, I'm sorry. What? what, what? Shh. Keep it down. You don't want to bring out the shush lady. Also, we do offer discounts for medicinal heroin card holders. Did you just casually offer heroin? He'll have a gin and tonic. Keep your voice down. Okay, but he just offered us heroin like it was any other drink. Yeah, this is a jazz club. Every jazz musician shoots heroin. What is this, the 1950s? They play into the retro theme a little heavy here. Guys, I forgot how hard Malort hits on an empty stomach. Hold up, hold up. All right, that group in the back is not vibing. Unleash the shush lady. Now you idiots have done it. She's coming out of the secret tunnels. Who dares call upon the power of the shush? What the fuck? Jen? From fucking legal? Wait. Jen from Legal, you moonlight as the shush lady at Chicago's most famous jazz club. Oh, yeah. With how much I have to do involving you guys, I needed a backup plan in case I got disbarred. Wow. Okay. Harsh. Fair. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Just a heads up, the heroin is gluten-free in case you guys were concerned. Welcome back, Skeleton Army. I'm Angel, and this aggressive driver on the severely reduced Kennedy Expressway is Nash. Thanks, Angel. And joining us today is our Chicago-based audio engineer, Dom. Thanks, but I don't live in Chicago. However, I do my best to partake in one of Chicago's most beloved exports. Pharmaceuticals. Pizza. Aircraft parts. And comedians. The perfect neoliberal politician that combines the city's union-based, progressive grassroots sensibilities with high-level Democratic Party machine corruption and apathy. Jazz. Italian beef. J- j- jazz. Pizza. Jazz. That's pizza. It's jazz. I said it. Also, pizza was the first thing you said. Ugh. What? What? <sighs> look, look, we know you love jazz, but I know you're going to go overboard with it and we're going to go like, I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Josh? Like a half hour? Yeah, like a half an hour without a single death? That's fair. But what if I told you 
A lot of jazz musicians have historically been abused by America's systemic racism and died as a result of it. Do you not listen to the show? Like, racism is like a character in the show. Like, he's here, like, all the time. Like He's over there. He's literally looking at you right now. Ah! Thanks, Kyle. Also, fuck you, Kyle. Yeah, also, fuck you. Get a job. Also, European Big Pharma pushing product on common folk without realizing or caring about its detrimental effects. Oh. Ooh. We've never talked Ooh, about that before. Yeah, hang on. Team Huddle. Natural over here. Yep. I just... I just... I just... I just I'm really hungry. <clears throat> Go on. Well, if you want to talk about it, we're going to have to talk some jazz. I, just, I feel like, I don't know, I just, I wonder like about the, okay, 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 all right, fine, 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 fine. But there's so much history with this music, you could make a massive 19-hour Ken Burns documentary on it. In fact, there is a massive 19-hour Ken Burns documentary on it. And as much as I enjoy it, even that series runs out of steam by the end and glosses over the second half of 20th century jazz. So we're going to give you the cliffiest of cliff notes. Oh, believe me, I won't mind. Quiet, you. Wait, we're going to cover the entire history of jazz? Like the whole... Of course not. Of course not. We're going to skim it. Dom. We'll just lay some quick background to get to our main topic. Starting from where? So the tribes of West Africa are a supremely oh, interesting God culture. Oh, Dumb. All right, all right. Everyone's here for the correlation between modern jazz and heroin. Mostly the heroin, if we're going to be honest. Right. But first, we have to really understand modern jazz. Is this when they stop going... <laughs> and start going... <laughs> That's weirdly kind of true. But to spell it out, let's set the stage and paint the picture. Nash? I, I don't, you're, you're the one that knows all this stuff. You, you. Oh, that's right. Guess I'll just have to do it. Wow. So the essence of jazz's lineage is the fusion of African rhythms with Western European harmony. They're brought together in America via the horrific industries that are the North Atlantic slave trade and the Chattel slavery plantations. The goddamn liberals always bring him back to slavery. Even... Slavery. Over centuries, slaves cling to their oral history while adapting to Christian musical stylings, birthing the blues across the South. Over decades, black New Orleans musicians such as Buddy Bolden improvise amongst one another using the blues lineage, effectively creating jazz. I'd like to take a moment, slight tangent, to talk about the innovator Jelly Roll Morton. Hey, yeah, whoa, 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 stay on topic, get to the heroin, let's go, come on. Okay, fair. But Bessie Smith's effect on the blues is an incredible hey, testament. look. I'm sure she's cool, but uh, heroin. Donde, donde está heroin? Está aquí? Heroin? Did you hear about this? Right. Okay. During the 1910s and 20s, amidst the first great migration, black Americans moved to the north in mass, taking that jazz and blues tradition with them. Jazz grows more urban during this time, and nightclubs, especially speakeasies, become synonymous with the genre. Wayne Wheeler in shambles. Yes. And moralists are horrified at the thought of young people again figuring out a way to have fun. But especially so this time because the fun music is being played by black people. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. Oh boy. How did that racism manifest? In many ways. But my favorite, quote unquote, is articles from white music critics at the time, penning titles such as Unspeakable Jazz Must Go, The Jazz Problem, Students in Arms Against Jazz, and why jazz sends us back to the jungle. Holy Jesus shit. Christ. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, a little on the nose with that jungle one. Just a tiny bit. 
Also, I don't know what school they refer to, but I can guarantee you those students were not in arms against Jazz. If anything, they probably wanted to get higher than their arms could possibly be raised. Here, here. Recorded music in the form of vinyl records also takes off during the 20s, allowing consumers to take jazz with them for the home or for parties. More importantly, musicians can now listen to other musicians much easier. Stars such as Louis Armstrong become sensations among audiences and other players. Additionally, it must be mentioned, the early record label battles during this time helped to shape the domineering monopolies that currently control a majority of okay. the recorded Sounds music. Sounds interesting. Don't have time. Get to the heroin, goddammit. During the big sad of the 1930s, jazz is pop music, and the big bands sweep. Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Benny Goodman, and more take advantage of another mass media advancement, the radio. This makes it possible for a family in New York to listen to a band play live in the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles. And Americans from St. Louis to Joplin, Missouri could also listen near simultaneously. And this is when everyone on the radio sounded like this. Side note, one reason why radio announcers sounded like they took a shot of helium before going on air is because the earliest radios really weren't able to support the low end of the sound spectrum. This meant many recorded voices you hear were probably deeper in real life. Actually, I'd like to come in with a little bit of history, and this is true. Uh, they all took a shot of helium before going in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can verify. Yeah, we, Angel and I were there, actually. We saw it happen. Yes. People got creative without booze, so <laughs> we started doing helium. <laughs> Listen, we had to try all the drugs. Oh, man, actually, that reminds me of a funny story from the Territory bands that functionally acted as cover bands of their day, bringing the jazz idiom to places like Kansas stop. City. Stop, 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 stop. There were all female bands. Heroin. Heroin. H E R O I N. Give me an H. H. Give me an E. E. Get, I don't remember the rest of the letters because. Heroin. Yay. In summation, jazz is without question the dominant musical force in the U.S. during the 30s. And while it will take those big band sounds to war during the 40s, World War II actually kills the big bands. There's a myriad of reasons for this, material rationing, musicians being drafted or volunteering for service, even some union disputes, but mostly changing styles from a genre that's been around for a decade. That brings us to the real meat of this episode. Fine. Oh, Christ. But I just want to say we skipped a crap ton of incredible music history. Yeah. Yeah, we did. But let me tell you, he really fucking tried not to. Oi, oi, oi. As we mentioned, jazz music was the hot new thing in the 20s that lived in speakeasies and drew the ire of Morales. In the 30s, it became the mainstream pop music. But while America enters the war during the 40s, an underground movement is happening in the nightclubs of New York City. Oh, so it's like punk? It kinda, but they managed to make fedoras look cool, and also it's not 99% white guys. Oof. Got him. So after big band gigs, you have all these musicians hanging out in clubs and playing. Sometimes as shows, sometimes just amongst friends. In places like Minton's Playhouse in Harlem and the clubs of 52nd Street, musicians in small groups of four, five, or six at a time began to break free of the comparatively safer and more stringent big band charts. Sounds like it'd be easier to break free when there aren't 25 other musicians and a conductor keeping everyone in check. Exactly. The bigger the group, the more guardrails you have to put in place so it doesn't break into an orgy of noise. I knew this was a euphemism. Yep, just a good old gangbang of dudes. A blow bang of bops. Mm. Musicians in small groups. Four, five, maybe six at a time. All right. Big band charts. You hear what I'm saying? Do you hear All right, it? all right. So unlike big band or swing music, 
This new music emphasizes individual soloists and the wealth of creativity that can come from just one musician. That's not to say big bands didn't feature soloists, but you got to solo a lot more when you were just in a quartet. Soloing is in the coolest parts of Santana songs? Actually, yeah. Soloing is one of the core tenets of jazz music. The ability to create a melody, separate from the written one, on the spot, based on what the musician hears at that moment. So just making shit up. Okay, another way to look at it, instantaneous composition. Beethoven was a great composer, and he did it deaf, but he still had to compose with a piece of paper. Charlie Parker could compose as the music was already going. Something, something, uh, roll over, Beethoven. That's the Beatles, Angel. Actually, that's Chuck Berry. Holy shit, hurry up and finish your jazz shit, Dom. This music featured faster tempos, more complex rhythms, and made much more use of the ninths, elevenths, and thirteenths in various flats and sharps. What? Fucking, what? Thirteen what? Reasons why. Is this a podcast about death? There's no time to explain. It just makes chords sound like this. Sound like this. Oh lord, oh lord. He busted out the keyboard. Nash, yeah. please stop asking questions. So now you've got a music that's faster, more intricate, freer, tighter, harder, beep, beep. better, faster, beep, beep. stronger. Beep, beep. Close. This new music is called Bebop. Wait, like the anime Cowboy Bebop? Yeah, most jazz musicians love Cowboy Bebop. If you want a modern reference point for what Bebop sounds like, just listen to the sax solo in the full version of the Cowboy Bebop theme. This is some anime shit that I can't keep up with. Quiet, you. What's a hentai? All right, so writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Kinda inherently dumb, and I run a jazz blog. So let's use some actual musical examples. Uh, I don't think we can do that because of copyright. We can, actually. He just has to keep talking over it in an active attempt at commentary, criticism, news reporting, and scholarly reports with no more than a few seconds pause for it to be considered fair use. Okay, then. Let's take Louis Armstrong with his 1928 recording of Savoy Blues. An Armstrong solo, which I am actively critiquing for educational purposes, he sticks close to a singable melody, keeping it playful and fun with plenty of breaks, tricks, and of course, sweet blues licks to close out the phrases. I understood absolutely none of that. Of course you didn't ask, you translucent bottle of Elmer's glue. Okay. Now, here's Count Basie's One O'Clock Jump from 1937. On this big band recording, that I am concertedly talking over in a fair use manner, you have a full section of horns underpinning the soloist. The orchestrated part of the song harkens back to the New Orleans days of improvised horn lines intersecting. Only now, it's more organized. Are we still good? We're still good. So imagine those two styles stretched out over two and a half decades of recorded music. Now let's contrast it with some Charlie Parker Bebop circa 1946. This is the Dizzy Gillespie composition, A Night in Tunisia, featuring Parker's famous alto sax break. In just six seconds, Parker plays 63 notes that curve and slink around the implied chord during the break stretching the meaning of those chords to their absolute limit without actually breaking them, and then coming back to a brilliant, blues-tinged bookend to the phrase. You had the butter chicken, right, Nash? Yeah. Okay, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, extra rice, please? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got you right here. Oh! Oh, he's done! Oh my god! Okay, sorry. We totally didn't order lunch yeah. while you were... Oh. 
so great. Learn so much. It's so important. Thanks, guys. All you need to know is that the Beboppers, as these musical pioneers were retroactively called, began pushing the limits of what sounded correct in solos. Oh, these samosas are really good. Spicy, though. Oh, shit. I think he's going to make a dramatic summary. It cannot be understated. Bebop was the musical sequel to the Harlem Renaissance of the 20s and 30s. There it is. Can I have some of that? It was a complete and total revolution that upended the pop sensibilities of the swing era, sparked modern American music, and launched jazz into the status of true art. You can arguably frame the history of jazz in a binary set. Pre-Bebop and post-Bebop. That's how radical it was. Wow, Nash, fuck me for some culture, right? What? I'm doing immersive research. Okay, well, this is all very mildly interesting at best, but uh, you know, when are we going to get to, you know, heroin? Or death in any capacity. Yeah. Where are the, di- where are the dying? Don't this to death. All right, all right, all right. Let's get into it. Max Roach, a young Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, essentially some of the most important names in jazz music. Oh, hang on. I think I, got, I, think I know this one, actually. Yeah. Uh, they all did heroin. Bingo. Woo! Finally. Everybody clap. Thank you. Clap for Jesus Christ. We got here. Woo. So far in the episode. Oh my God. The most energy you'll ever hear about heroin ever. (laughs) It really is amazing how pervasive this one opiate was amongst this storied community. Like imagine if every NFL quarterback in the league or every big movie director working today were all participating in one highly potent drug. That would be steroids and cocaine, respectively. (laughs) Now, each of these names are stories in and of themselves, but we're going to hone in on two. The first is Dizzy Gillespie, the father of bebop, who was an incredible showman, genius trumpeter, and gave the genre its name. Famously, Dizzy Gillespie did not do heroin or other narcotics, and neither did he abuse alcohol. He was born in 1917 and died in 1993 at the age of 75. Is is this going to be on the test or? I mean, that's kind of the point I'm making, which is that comparatively, he has the much less traumatic story in contrast to his musical soulmate and hipster Jesus, Charlie Parker. Hipster like Jack Kerouac, round sunglasses, bongo playing beret and turtleneck wearing hipster. I hardly know her. Precisely. Except again, Charlie Parker's drip is objectively way better and he's black, so it's not as cringe. Double oof. Charlie Parker, also known as Yardbird, or just Bird, becomes the most prominent of the beboppers. Born in 1920 Kansas City, Kansas, Parker begins playing the saxophone at the age of 11. Oh, he found a hobby early. One infamous story from 1936 has him playing a jam session in Kansas City, but he started kind of sucking after losing track of the chords. This prompted legendary Count Basie drummer Papa Joe Jones to toss one of his cymbals at Parker's feet as a sign to get the fuck off the stage. Harsh. Hey, come on, you can't coddle kids forever. I bet he pushes himself to play better. Just just listen. Hang on. The story has been mythicized, with some versions having Jones chucking the symbol at Parker's head, or Parker ugly crying himself to sleep that night. The Damien Chazelle movie Whiplash, which I absolutely love, uses these mythos for distinct character development, but a lot of people think it's true. However the details lie, what we do know is the incident prompted Parker to practice harder and push himself to be a better musician. See? Told you. Nice. That was good foreshadowing. Parker claims to have practiced the saxophone 11 to 15 hours a day during this time for several years. Oh, damn. Okay. Well. That same year, he marries his high school sweetheart, who will be his first wife. How old is uh, how old is Parker at this point? 16 years old. Uh... He also gets a start working various bands and gigs in the Kansas, Missouri area, hitting the road and spending long nights at various clubs. 
In the fall of, again, that same year, at the age of 16, Charlie Parker breaks three ribs and fractures his spine in a car accident. He's able to recover, but with the use of opioids, such as morphine, which could still be prescribed by a doctor. Of course, this eventually led to... Heroin use. At age 16. That'll do it. Somehow, he not only survives all this, but retains his skills at the saxophone. In 1939, he finally makes it to the jazz mecca of the world, New York City. He starts from the bottom up, making ends meet as a dishwasher, but after constant gigging, he becomes a master innovator. And all of his stuff was recorded, right? Like, that's how, that's how we know. Bird has plenty of recordings in shorter studio sessions once he gets big in the 50s. Early on in the 40s, when him and Bebop were just starting, the big record companies forced a musician strike for two years, so recording with them meant crossing the picket line. Rich bastards. There was a musician that followed Bird around on nightclub sessions and made bootleg recordings. These would be truer to what the art form is like. The funny thing is, these recorders were bigger than a typewriter big, because he's recording on vinyl 78s and magnetic tape. Also, the tech still only allows for minutes of recording at a time, even in the studio, so he had to swap out tapes and vinyl pretty frequently. I'm imagining this dude sitting in a dark corner of a nightclub, frantically swapping out reels of tape, all while trying to stay inconspicuous because it's a bootleg. Meanwhile, Charlie Parker is just like high as a kite, like blown into a saxophone for hours. That thing is like a fucking bong now. And this dude is essentially recording the Dead Sea Scrolls of jazz music. Beautiful. That's how history's made, baby. It really can't be stated how long these club sessions go for. Literal hours with songs going for 20, 30 minutes at a time. Today, you might see that in the Green Mill in Chicago on a Saturday night or a random jazz session, but even they tag in and out. For Parker, here's where we start to see some of that reckless rock star lifestyle, including failed marriages, embarrassing moments with respected individuals, and petty crime. Sounds like something out of a Jim Morrison biopic. Or any professional wrestler from the 20th century. The nights were long and often going into four in the morning when they stopped. The playing was also very intense on the body, and many musicians needed a way to keep going and alleviate the pain. That's where we're brought to everyone's favorite drug. Thank God. Move All the right, tables, here move we the go. tables, please. Drag that over here, please. Now get this virgin out of here. All righty, now we can take over. Hey, you look good, sweetheart. Wait, what? Oh, dude, there's no way we're not voicing the part of the script label, a brief history of heroin and opiates. Like, this is what we paid for. Back to the show. Drug history. Like all history, is a running joke that just won't end. That's ironic because drug highs do end. And they're terrible. But we'll start the history of heroin in 1874 when English chemist C.R. Adler Wright, that's white guy four names, Ooh. first synthesized diacetylmorphine at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. Another London researcher, F.M. Pierce white guy three names described animals undergoing drug testing as having great prostration fear the eyes being sensitive and the pupils dilated considerable salivation being produced in dogs and the slight tendency to vomit in some cases but no actual emesis oh thank goodness no actual emesis coming from the test dog fucking piece of shit respiration was at first quickened but subsequently reduced and the heart's action was diminished and rendered irregular loss of power in the pelvis and hind limbs together with a diminution of temperature in the rectum of about four degrees <laughs> he said the butt got colder <laughs> yeah cold butt <laughs> uh, fuck him for experimenting on dogs though oh yeah 100% after some on and off testing for about 20 years German pharmaceutical company Bayer released a commercial product diacetyl morphine under the name heroin in 1898 the name heroin is likely derived from the german one heroisch 
which can mean large, powerful, extreme, or one with pronounced effect even in small doses. Just like Kleenex and Velcro, the name heroin becomes synonymous with the drug. It becomes very popular in the medical world as a substitute for similar pain relievers like codeine and morphine. One newspaper ad read, Dissolve on the tongue, heroin tablets. One tablet every two, three, or four hours as indicated. Sample box free to physicians, St. Louis, USA. This is the future liberals want. Even better. The philanthropic St. James Society in New York believed heroin could cure morphine addiction. Hmm. And put out print ads saying that they would mail them a tablet of heroin for free, calling it, quote, the most remarkable remedy ever discovered, end quote. Okay, sorry. This is the future liberals want. Okay, but this has like the same sort of taste on the tongue as... Titanic was an unsinkable ship. She's built to be unsinkable, <laughs> this is right? All true. Like, this is the remarkable remedy. Titanic is unsinkable. This sub can't explode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, problems did begin arising when physicians started to notice patients suffering from withdrawal and diminishing returns with repeated use. By the time medical consensus said, hey, um, guys, maybe we shouldn't be using this this much, uh, Pandora's box had already been opened. As a historical disclaimer, we don't want to paint the picture that the pharmaceutical world was perfect before heroin, because, <laughs> yes, there had already been a widespread addiction epidemic globally, including in America. Heroin is an opiate, because it uses opium in its manufacturing. You probably heard of the opium wars in China, which is some sweet, sweet imperialism, to say the least. Also, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, the Civil War prompted the Union Army to issue nearly... 10 million opium pills to its soldiers, yeah. plus 2.8 million ounces of opium powders and concentrated liquid for medical use. This also prompted an epidemic once the war concluded. To give you the scope of how long over-commercialization of opium have been fucking with people, in many cases outright killing them, in 1808, the General Hospital in Nottingham, England reported that 200 pounds of opium and 600 pints of the commercial opiate containing laudanum were sold annually to working-class citizens. What the fuck were they doing with that much opium? <laughs> the fuck weren't they doing with it? These overworked industrial revolution wage slaves would often use these, quote, quieting mixtures to calm their babies down, which is what you want babies to do, when in fact they were poisoning them, which is what you don't want babies to be doing. It's hard to blame them, though, because these products were being sold casually in pharmacies or even direct from local chemists themselves. Products like Godfrey's Cordial or Dalby's Carmitative or Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. Even as societies begin to recognize these substances as dangerous, it is hardly safe medicinally. In 1896, Baltimore, Maryland, a mother accidentally poisoned her daughter after giving her some laudanum instead of some Ipecac syrup. Which, granted, isn't used anymore as medicine because forced vomiting isn't recommended, but still... According to the Baltimore Sun, the bottles were side by side, and the fact that the two liquids were nearly the same color was one of the causes of the fatal mistake. Meanwhile, people discovered that they could use opiates to overdose on purpose. <gasps> Again, according to the Baltimore Sun, quote, a respected sea captain swallowed a fatal dose of laudanum in 1879 after running into business troubles. Gertrude Stalop, despondent over her inability to obtain work, took a lethal dose in 1898. Miss Simmons of Cumberland, 25, overdosed on the drug rather than die by consumption in 1905. Again, you could get all this stuff at local pharmacies, without a prescription. Between opium, morphine, and codeine being sent down a commercial pipeline with the 
flimsiest of science, there was already a pattern emerging of epidemics. We're just focusing on heroin today because of the jazz context and its pervasiveness culturally. So to bring us back to the big H. My ass. Not preparation H. We noted how the medical community was just starting to figure out the heroin for general pain relief. Maybe kind of, sort of, maybe, I don't know. Medical malpractice. Muy malo. Muy malo. Malpractico. That's incorrect, but okay. But like most scientific backtracking, it wasn't as clean of a break. To illustrate that disagreement, we have one such dialogue dictated to us in a medical journal. Fun facts with Nash. A medical journal is a kind of scientific journal where a bunch of medical professionals present research, clinical cases, editorials, and other information in one easier-to-read publication. They're peer-reviewed and vetted, at least they're supposed to be, in order to maintain a high degree of academic and professional integrity. That's the gist of it. Okay, thank you for mansplaining what a medical journal is. But uh, here's my question. How is this not medical facts? Quiet, you. They've also been around for a while, with some of the earliest scientific journals coming out in the 1600s. I understand they were trying their best at the time, because how else could you back then? But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the scientist's skill and honesty, right? Right? Yes. And when shit gets to fighting words, oh man, the doctors go at it. Yeah, boy. So today we have a clinical case from the 1911 edition of the Kentucky Medical Journal, authored by John D. Trowick, white guy, three names, titled, quote, a case of heroin poisoning. Succinct, to the point. It's good. No, it's good. Brilliant. The crux of the article is him setting off small alarm bells on the over-application of heroin. He begins by describing a woman who, to put it medically, gets real fucked up after being thrown off a horse. And she later undergoes an appendectomy that also, to put it medically, fucks up her uterus. Naturally, this patient is in a lot of pain, so the nurse is ordered to administer between 1 and 12 grains of heroin. Did you mean to say gram? No, a grain. It's a unit of measurement from antiquity that's actually really rarely seen nowadays, but it was still really common in medicine in 1911. All you need to know is that one gram is equal to like 15 grains. So the clinical case says one to 12 grains of heroin was given. Is that a lot? According to present-day European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction, quote, a typical dose of heroin is 100 milligrams at street-level purity, end quote. Just a reminder for the Americans out there, 1,000 milligrams is one gram, or about 15 grains. So doing some math, this nurse was ordered to administer up to 800 milligrams of heroin. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. This chick was just potentially given eight times the typical poor people dosage all at once? Dude, that's almost like two jazz musicians. Trawick then writes, quote, When I came into the room just a few moments before the administration, I noticed that the breathing of the patient was very unusual. Namely, a deep, stertorous, irregular, jerky respiratory effort with sighing and noisy expiration. The pulse could hardly be detected and was about 42. In a few moments, the respiratory count was six to the minute and gradually became more shallow. Holy shit. Trowick continues, quote, The patient becomes pulseless and then stops breathing for a perceptible interval. The pupils were contracted and continued so even during the expiratory cessation. This was about 10 minutes after the hypodermic of heroin had been administered. Jesus Christ. Here's the kicker that really sets off some folks in the comments section. Quote, The person had all the appearance of a person profoundly under the influence of an opiate. That'll do it. Yeah, did you say the comment section? 
yeah, technically the discussion section, medical journals have sections where professionals can prepare cited manuscripts to discuss and debate points. In the 1911 Kentucky Medical Journal, apparently it's just a bunch of dudes with three names going off with each other. Oh just, my God. Hold on, just, hold on, hold on. I got to see this for myself. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, here's one. So one, Miss M. Casper objects to Tawick's case study by writing... It seems to me unquestionable in this case that the nurse accidentally injected the heroin into a vein as evidenced by the quickness of its action and the concentration of its effect. This is an accident which might easily occur. Yeah, fuck that nurse, right? They're all from Kentucky, right? So Casper continues, <clears throat> I have used heroin a great many times, and I have never seen a contracted pupil or any other physiological action characteristic of the morphine group follow its use, but I do know from personal experience, that nothing feels qu- quite so good as a dose of heroin after a laparotomy. Yeah, am I right? <laughs> Dr. Virgil E. Simpson agrees, writing, I do not believe that heroin in 1 to 12 gram doses, properly administered under ordinary conditions, would produce the effects described by Dr. Trowick in so short a time. Well, hold on now. We got Milton Board up in here starting to see some issues when he writes, quote, I gave one man 18 grains of heroin, hyperdermatically. That's what's actually written. He wrote hyperdermatically in 24 hours without relieving his pain. And I believe that might as easily have taken twice that amount. This man's body, buttocks and thighs showed the characteristic abscesses that are so often seen in old morphine habitues. In this particular case, the patient brought with him to the institution a spoon, which he had picked up at a hotel, and in which he was in the habit of boiling his heroin, unquote. So these Kentucky doctors are just starting to figure out that heroin may be getting abused, specifically via spoon in a hotel. Milton Ward goes on, quote, I will say, that's what's actually written in the page. He he writes, I will say, I will say that scarcely a month passes that someone is not brought to me who was addicted to the use of heroin. Some few months ago, there was brought to the institution the wife of a minister who is in the habit of taking, who was in the habit of taking one to 24 grains three times a day. (laughs) She had been doing this for a year and a half and could not get away from it, unquote. Holy fucking shit. God damn. Where where the fuck is this minister's wife getting up to 4,600 milligrams of heroin from, like, daily in 1911? At a fucking Walgreens dick nuts, were you not listening? What? Also, Walgreens is historically correct for this joke. Walgreens Drug Company was birthed in 1901. Birthed? You're going to call me out on not knowing that they could okay. just get into the right. apartment. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what that was all about, but Milton Board drops a cold-ass line right here. Quote, Harmless preparations of opium are dreamed of by empirists and manufacturers, but do not exist. Unquote. Goddamn, Milton. Uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, listen to this one. From F.T. Fort, when he writes, Now, heroin is a drug that I have used almost to the exclusion of morphine. For the past 8 to 10 years, and I've gotten excellent results from it. I recall one case in which 1 to 24 grains suffice to control all the pain from an organic heart lesion, from which the patient afterwards died. But, you know, end quote. To try to be fair, it's hard to feel any pain at all when you're dead. 
Also, hindsight is twenty twenty, and a lot of science is really just like observe and report, especially back then. John D. Trawick, the OP who brings all this up in the first place, admits, quote, I feel that bringing charges against heroin is almost like questioning the fidelity of a good friend. <laughs> Jesus. Oof. Heroin wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> Heroin's my friend. <laughs> That's I my homie. It. That's my buddy. That was my oh. best man. <laughs> He's the godfather of my son. You wouldn't hurt me, would you, Heron? So you've been stealing at a spoon for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> I feel the bringing charges against heroin is almost questioning the fidelity of a good friend. I have used it with good results, and I have gotten some bad results, such as a peculiar band-like feeling around the head. Dizziness, you know, those kinds of things. Yes, I'm sure it was, it was very peculiar. Still, he finishes. The case is reported merely to call attention to the fact that there is some question as to the reliability of the drug. Look, are we saying that heroin is inherently bad? Uh, that is not our call to make. What we are saying is that Victorian medicine was the wild, wild west, and that sweet, sweet profit incentive is usually going to take the lead. So to bring it back around, did jazz musicians push the drug in mass? No. Did jazz make heroin popular? Not really, although you could argue it did make it cool, which, hey, if you want to throw some swag on top of that working class stress relief, then nah, who am I? Ah, heroin, the people's opiate. See, Nash, back in our day, it was crack. Anyway, if you're ever reading historical media about a fear of jazz music, they're using jazz as a dog whistle for black person dealing your kid's heroin. Meanwhile, the heroin epidemic was already a clear problem for decades, recklessly pushed by big pharma and not regulated in the U.S., Drastically, until 1924 via the Anti-Heroin Act, two and a half decades from when Bayer first released it as an over-the-counter drug. It's a pattern seen with opium, laudanum, and morphine and codeine before its turn of the century, and would repeat with Oxycontin and fentanyl afterwards. And on that fucked up DEA batting order, that's the episode. And part one. We'll get back to the jazz Ooh. and to some systemic racism. Yay! Wait, not like that. In part two. A special thanks to you, our favorite listener. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rate and review is required, or a doctor from Kentucky will give you 30,000 grains of heroin for your stub toe. You can also follow us on social media. I'm at Gorilla Jokes, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A Jokes. And I'm at It's Nash Flynn. And I'm at Dom Guan or at Dom Guan One. So that's D-O-M-G-U-A-N. Also, B-C-J Chicago on Instagram for some Chicago jazz exploration. And of course, follow the podcast at Death and Friends Podcast on Insta and Death of Pod everywhere else. Hey, would you like to live deliciously? Become a member of the Skeleton Army and join us on Patreon. We use it to cover our sound guys' medical bills. In order to properly write medical facts, we expose Dom to all the illnesses and ways to die we talk about on the show. And we did nothing to you this week because you had to host the episode, so... Yes, but I did get charged $3,200 for a five-minute ambulance ride last year. That really happened. Months worth of savings, just gone. What? What did we do to you that week? I don't even remember this. Do you remember this, Adrian? Speaking of Patreon, it is time to honor a member at the Brendan Fraser level. Praise be Haley W. And praise be Brendan Fraser. God damn it. So check it out at patreon.com slash deathandfriends. For more information, visit deathandfriends.org. Join us as we make the entire internet worse. Hey, everybody. Here's the thing. Death, tricky to talk about. So, please remember... You are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. Till next time, Skeleton Army. Stay spooky. Love you. Love you. Jazz. 
This has been a Navery Inc. podcast. Go to NaveryInc.com for more details. Executive produced by Jacob Duffy Halbleib. Audio design by Dominic Guanzon. Themes and transitions by Amy Doe. The fuck is a nave? Ew, Jake, that's so gross. Jen, no, I'm trying to yeah, take a take. It's so gross. Oh. That's the aggressive sound. That's disgusting. Death? Who dares call upon the power of the shush? <laughs> That's all I got. It's my Godzilla impersonation. Death? Is this like when it stopped going like, oh, fuck, hang on a second. So Louis, Louis Armstrong was like, <laughs> it's, it's really yeah, dumb. No, I, I remember. Okay. <laughs> But I don't know what Miles Davis sounds like. Uh, Miles Davis is like, it's like forward facing. It's like, it's like you just woke up. <laughs> it's like Louis Armstrong is the drunkenness and then Miles Davis is the hangover. I'm so like, appreciative of this description so right fair. now. <laughs> That's a really good way to describe that, by the way. And accurate. Death? Here, here. You're not going to get the bubble sound because it's not a bubble long. Proud of you, son. <laughs> that was impressive. You're welcome. That's good. That's that's uh, immersion. Death and more stringent big band charts. Is this a euphemism? In places like Milton's Playhouse, it's about to get real horny, right? Musicians in small groups, four, five, mm. maybe six at a time, began to break free. Safer and more stringent big band charts. You hear what I'm saying? Do you hear it? Polyphonies, yeah. polyphony. <laughs> that's multiple sounds. Yeah, it is. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Hey. Death. A blow bang of bops. All right, all right. So, unlike big band or swing music, do you want to put more into that? Do you want to put more into that? <laughs> just, just Nash saying the word blow bang is the funniest shit in the world. Death. All right, all right. Is it? So, un- <laughs> is it? Yeah. Who's 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 saying that? You saying outside it all of like four notes? I wasn't exaggerating too much when I said I kind of used to be an incel. All right, all right. So, unlike big band or swing music, the new Sorry. music you emphasizes individual that. soloists and the wealth of creativity that can come from one musician. I do have a fedora. That's not to say big bands <laughs> didn't. Death. Sorry, my f- computer was just suddenly like, "Hey, it's time to do an update on cricket." <laughs> That's like that was not necessary. It heard it heard me by the fedora thing. I just I was like, this is cringe. Let's update. <laughs> the, the computer's like, did you, we're just gonna ignore that? We're yeah. just gonna... <laughs> we're about to brush on past it. Death. What fucking with thirteen? What reasons why? <laughs> that damn smile. You include those lines, but like in the background. Of the... <laughs> okay, the Selena like Gomez song barely... "Come Back to You" on the Thirteen Reasons Why season two soundtrack is actually I fucking love that song. There's no time to explain, but it makes chords like this. Selena's very talented. Don't she, she is. Okay, I love you like a love song. The dumbest song in the bop. world. No, it's a no. Bop. I hate that song. No, I love. It's so good. I love shitty bops, but that is, that is just bad. That's just not good. Dom, it's been said and done. Mm-mm. Every beautiful songs has already been sung. Only cringe in this building. Look, I guess right now here's another one. <laughs> Death. Quiet, you. What's a hentai? Can you say it more exactly? Like, what's a hentai anyway? I'm legitimately asking a question, though. Oh, are you serious? Oh, oh uh, no, no, no. I think it's funnier if, it, if it's a legitimate question. Oh, okay, of, okay, oh. okay. I thought we were we were ready to go. We were ready to I answer. Was like, do that. we need a mansplain to you what that is? Please don't make us do that. Death. What the fuck were they doing with that much opium? Well, look. 
according to everything you just said, Dom, jazz. <laughs> they were doing jazz. <laughs> doing jazz. Oh, 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 jazz. White people in the 1800s. That's where it came from. Got it. Yeah, yes. exactly. They, they, Thank, Thank you, you Angel. Jazz. Thank That's you. jazz. <laughs> That's jazz. <laughs> Listen, when your fucking walls are poisoning you, you kind of are doing jazz. That is very stage. fair. <laughs> <laughs> just old spinsters, fucking lead-addled brains, just yeah. going, <laughs> just the, the original exactly. scatting. Fuck yeah. Louis Armstrong. It was just lead poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> it's just lead <laughs> Well, that's the episode, everybody. Thanks so much to you, our favorite listener. Jesus Christ. Death? These overworked industrial revolution wait... Wave slaves? That's... <laughs> Radical. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> oh. Death? But like most scientific backtracking, it wasn't clean of... Is English my first language? Your only language. Death? Yeah. So today, we have a clinical case from the 1911 edition of the Kentucky Medical Journey. No, not the journey. That's not what that word is. Highway run. Death? Ah, listen to this one. From F.T. Fort, when he writes, quote, what? It sounds like fart. <laughs> hefty fart. A hefty fart. Yeah, there you go. A hefty, a hefty fart. fart. Death? Love you. Love you. Hey, can Jazz. you, pa- Angel, can you pass the heroin? Can I? Yep. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep, thanks. Yep, Great. Yep, yep. Here you spoon. Go. Dom, toss me a spoon. Right here. Poop. No, not the plastic one, Dom. That's ah! for the Indian food. It's in my eye. Oh God. <laughs> okay. I'm stopping. Everybody mm, good? Maybe let's not end on a we do heroin joke. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Mm, well, if not. we do it in a southern voice, then it's a reenactment. Oh. It's oh, a historical true. reenactment, not an actual <laughs> thing. Hey, Dr. Trowick, can you pass me that heroin real quick? I saw, I saw, could you pass me the heroin? <laughs> I need to write another peer review. I got you know your fine I mean. china right here, sir. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, oh of course, this needs a tinge of racism as well. <laughs> Take the oil lamp, put it right under the, the spoon. Good God. <laughs> Part two's going to be even crazier. All right, bye. Uh, bye. It won't. It will not get crazier than that.